Hello, here we are on March 10th, 2016 at the Science Fiction Club meeting, and today, we are ta- this evening, or today, we are talking about Solaris by Stanislaw Lem, and uh, we'll just go around to the people and see what they thought about the book in general, and uh, then we'll go through uh, more particulars as we go along. Okay. I guess I'll start off. Um, it's interesting the fact that the book was originally re- re- uh, written in, in Polish and then translated to French and then French to English. I don't, I don't know if it lost anything in the translation, but it was a very interesting book. A little bit spooky, as I think you mentioned, uh, uh, Evan, before that it would be. Um, them wandering around in that big station, just three or four of them, and then these strange beings appearing like that and, and the whole thing about the ocean. So, so it was rather intriguing. I, I found it quite, quite interesting. Well, I read it a couple of times. The first time or two I read it, I, I enjoyed it. And then I read it earlier this week and I found a couple of holes in it. The style of writing is very much like a, a 19th century spooky story or ghost story or something. And that kind of bothered me, but I guess maybe the the you know the fact that it was written in a different part of the world and all of that might have something to do with that and then the other problem i found throughout the book this week was that the scientists were not very scientific <laughs> they were strange and uh, that might also have something to do with the place and the and the culture in which it was written and the perhaps a style that the author was exposed to but Generally, it was it was pretty good. I enjoyed it the first time and um, kind of went through it the second time. But <clears throat> as I said earlier this week, it was I just I was maybe I just wasn't in a good mood that day or something. But I just found things wrong with it. Well, the book was spooky. <laughs> um, you're right, Mary. The scientists were extremely strange. Well, they were all fr- they they were they reminded me of. Of the mad scientists or something like that because they were just strange and I think my favorite part of the whole book was the ocean I wish that that was more developed I mean it it got technical and all that but I, I, I wanted I don't know I, I liked it but I don't I I wanted it to go in a different way it was it was I wanted it to go in a different way I wanted to know more about the ocean I wanted them to you know what just go forward with that, and they did. He didn't. Well, I thought it was a great book. It has its flaws. There's no perfect. Even the books on my favorites list aren't. I have, can find flaws in them. But I think it was a really great book. And uh, I know what you mean about the ocean. The problem is that he couldn't have developed it too much more because uh, the book was already not really that character oriented to begin with, and. If he had developed the ocean much more, then then it would have been so. The book would have been so lopsided in terms of you know the characters that were in it and so on. Um, I think he did what he could, but the scientists were strange because, well, partly it was the writing style, but partly it was because when he when Calvin arrived on the scene, the other two were already afflicted with their visitors, and we never really got a chance to meet them, but some of them were kind of strange. We know that, and, and the scientists were um, 
affected by that. But the, another reason is that I don't think Lem was actually a scientist himself, so he wasn't writing as a scientist, so that, that probably didn't help either. Sweetie? Um, I always feel bad when I don't love something that Evan loves because you want to have a lot in common with your partner, but um, I, I had a hard time with it. Um, what I told Evan was is that it had a it was reminiscent of a gothic romance, and I think that's what you were looking for, Mary. Yeah. Um, I thought that the um, the dialogue was so stilted. Um, I thought the main character one minute he was absorbed with his ex lover, you know that that. Uh, the woman he felt so much guilt about, he would he would be absorbed in her, and then he would ignore her as if she weren't there. And um, I I don't know I, w- I was it drew me in at the beginning, and then I got I I wasn't absorbed in the descriptions of the ocean, and I I kind of liked the idea that it might be a a single organism or something, but. All the stuff about discussions about God just kind of got on my nerves, and I think maybe I'm past that stage where I want to question. I don't want to read about gods who don't care and gods who created something they can't handle, and I it's very discouraging. And by the end, I really want it out. I do not blame you. I almost skipped that whole <clears throat> part. Um, I didn't... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't blame you. Yeah, my last time through it, I skipped the dry parts, too, because I thought, I just wanted to get on and see what happened. But it, my favorite part of the, of the whole thing was at the very end where the um, he's out by the by the ocean and he sticks his hand in and the foam wraps itself around his entire hand. I thought that was absolutely fascinating because it was reaching and he was reaching and there was a contact and it may not have been any significance but at least it was touch and that that whole thing just absolutely fascinated me every time I read that section. I mentioned that even before I'd read this book the second time, I remembered that from when I read it. The Learning Ally, formerly RFB&D, had it many years ago. They don't have it anymore. But uh, I'm so glad that Bard has a version now. But that is a great scene uh, to end the book with. That was. I love that scene. Um, but wait, Martin, have you said anything about it? I think you'd... I don't remember. Um, I have a question about the end of the book. Um, did he commit suicide? No, he couldn't have, because he was writing, remember he referred earlier on about, he remembers to this day, whatever, he's writing in the present, but this is all in his past, though we don't know what happened to him after that, but he didn't commit suicide. I was wondering what, you know, I was intrigued by that black woman that he saw wandering through the station and then found her in the freezer and warm. I assume that she was a manifestation of someone, but that was sort of strange. He never developed that too much. That was Bajarian's visitor, and he killed himself, and she, 
remember, Rhea had a hard time se- being able to separate herself from Kelvin, and so when Jabarian killed himself, uh, she went into the freezer with him and wouldn't. And well, she left him eventually, apparently, but she wouldn't leave him for a while. And that's when Calvin discovered her in there with him, with his body. I actually felt really sorry for Calvin. I really did. Yeah, he was really, you know, he certainly was tormented by what he had done to, you know, his lover back, you know, years ago, and then having this woman reappear at, at first, you know, and then he and it was even hard for her too because she became conscious of the fact that she wasn't. Uh, the person that that you know she was supposed to be, she, she and apparently she developed, developed a consciousness that she was sort of like an instrument in the hands of something. Yeah, she had enough. She had enough awareness to realize that when she when it was revealed to her, and she dug into it a little further, what she really was. She had enough awareness to, you know, how would you feel if you suddenly realized that you were just a pawn, you know, or something you know, even, who knows what, even lower, or just a whatever in this, uh, whatever, sweetie. Um, this isn't anything about science, science fiction, and it could be seen in many different lights, but to me it was a grand, poetic, romantic gesture when he had his hand on the rail, and he went away, and or lifted his hand, and he looked back, and she kissed the place where his hand had been. That's <laughs> just touched the romantic, you know, romantic in me. <laughs> yeah. I remember that part, too. That stuck with me, too. Hey, Marshall. Hello. How's it going? Great. How are you? Sleepy. I just woke up. You just arrived on time to give your thoughts about the book. Well, I didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, I... When he did his test to see if he was rational or not, I gave up on the book right then because I don't. I, th- I think that that failed. His test failed because if your brain isn't working, you can't tell if your brain isn't working. And after that, I just lost it. Well, we mentioned earlier that um, the author wasn't a scientist, so that probably was part of the reason that. A lot of the science stuff didn't work because that was one thing I had a lot of trouble with too was it just lacked any sort of scientific validity. Not that I'm a scientist, but I've read enough science fiction <laughs> to know what should work, I guess, and we all have by this time. So um, that was one of the faults of the book was that it just, the science wasn't really there. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, if you go through a series of elaborate calculations and you come up with the same answer... That, and from a completely different source that's independent. I mean, that tells you something. But how do you know that you're actually, you know, actually did the calculations and that there was another source? You know, it 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 really gets weird. Because um, I remember my dad was having hallucinations once, and I was talking to him on the phone, but I was also there, and he seemed quite calm about the whole thing you know even though he knew I wasn't there or couldn't be there so I don't you know I I don't think you can trust anything if the brain isn't working right 
the other problem I had is they mentioned that it was the planet was orbiting a red star, red star, and a blue star. Well, blue stars don't last that long, you know, and they usually go up in a bang. So I don't know that you could even develop any kind of life on a planet that orbited a blue star. Now, was there any? Was there any? The, the oceans were pretty. They didn't. Have, they didn't have life as such, did they? Um, and also, I was wondering about these. What do they call them? These creations of the ocean, or they form these floating. What would, how would you describe them? Shapes and forms and everything. I wonder what that was supposed to um, portray, or you know, what how did that represent what the ocean was was about? Well, they he mentioned the mimoids and the symmetriads and the asymmetry, and and then he talked about all these different kinds of theories as to what they were. You know, so I mean, they, uh, he was remember Calvin was reading these books, and and the author was putting in the, you know, as kind of excerpts of these books, you know, about all these different kinds of theories as to what they were, you know, where they, you know, who knows? They were all, they had all different kinds of ideas about that. Uh, and they did, he, the ocean did create some life forms that were, that they found on the islands, and, uh, but uh, they weren't really, you know, I guess they, they went back into the ocean at some point, or they just, they disintegrated after a time. But, um, yeah, it did create some life forms, but um, but uh, the uh, the science, you're right, was not really good. But the author's point was really not um, uh, the hard science. The point was that we don't really have any idea how alien things can really get out there. Um, and he made this point when I posted the essay on the science fiction club list that you know, so much of science fiction is, you know, just looking into the mirror and looking at aliens who are very much like us. We just uh, read a book that was very like that, that that spinneret had all kinds of aliens that were just almost just like us. Um, so a kind of interesting contrast between those two books, you know, that really highlights his point that I think is a good point. What I found interesting, it was a little sad, but from a scientific point of view, I find it found it interesting how, um, oh, what was it? They they had these different, like, um, characteristics. I guess you would call of life, like the newborn, the second part. I didn't like the stillbirth, but it, it was interesting the creations. Um, I thought it was interesting that we were, as as he was looking at all the books about that this planet. Um, I think it was an author um, giving homage to the scientific method and also communicating to us the fact that it takes many hypotheses before people figure things out. And this it, and it just showed how many different hypotheses had already been tested and, and hadn't, hadn't panned out yet. And, um, I think he was letting us know that all questions are not easily answered and that scientists do have some answers, but we can't expect them to figure out everything in a snap or... Basically, the ocean, the ocean still remains, I guess, a mystery to the scientists that are trying to study it, to, be, you know, to figure out, you know, I guess... It, 
one could say that it is sentient, but how it was able to get into the minds of the people and create and read their thoughts and create these beings that are apparently, at least in some respects, like in the case of the main character, the the girl was, you know, something that was dear to him. You wonder what some of the other creations of the other uh, scientists that were on the on the station, what what kind of creatures they were, because apparently some of them were pretty scary. Yeah, uh, but uh, well, they, there, there's probably some psi going on there, and, and psi was even the hard as so-called hard SF writers like Asimov and Clark had psi powers in their books in the Foundation and in Clark's The City and the Stars and Childhoods and and. and uh, so back in the even back in the sixties, now it's, now psi isn't considered. You know, you don't see that in hard SF anymore. But back then, it was uh, even in the so-called hard SF authors were using it. So, um, but I'll tell you what was a spooky episode, and I remembered this from when I read it the first time many years ago. Also, was when he puts the first Rhea in that shuttle car and locks Ooh. the door behind her. And he's on the outside, and she's trying to get out, and, the whole, and he's thinking the whole thing might come down. Wow, that was a little spooky. Oh, yeah. That was scary. <laughs> I, I think that it was fascinating, though, how the images just appeared on the ocean. That's sort of how imagination works. It's sort of how dreams work, because they're, they're, they have form, but they're not formed like... We think of them in everyday life, and that I think was part of what he was trying to portray in that, in all of his images of the ocean, what it did, and yet at the same time you had the, you know, as you said, the the um, aircraft when he locked her in, and and here she is pounding on the on the walls and the door and whatever, trying to get out. I mean, it's like. Reality is reality, but how real is it? And how real is imagination? And it just, I mean, that's what made it so weird. <laughs> but, but you start thinking about this stuff, and it's just it's fascinating because he really did make an impression. And I think that's why this book has lasted as long as it has because it still works as a novel. And it just has things that it's trying to say even after what I think was written published in 1961 and that was like 50 years ago and we're still reading it don't they call it a classic is this a classic yeah I think so despite the fact that it's you know not that hard an SF book in and you know as it's true but um, but believe it or not it reminded me of a Star Trek episode uh, the next generation um, Oh, man, uh, I'm not sure about the title. Q-Who, I think, where Q takes the Enterprise to meet the Borg for the first time. This is before the Borg got cut down to size in later episodes, unfortunately. But um, when he takes them to meet the Borg for the first time, he tells them that space is not necessarily a cozy place. And there are dangers in it. Now, the ocean wasn't actively dangerous, but the point is very similar in that you're not going to under. There are things in space that are just you can't deal with them. You they might be dangerous, they might not, but you aren't necessarily going to be able to get or understand what's going on out. You know, with an alien civilization, whether it's the ocean or the Borg or 
or whatever. That was one of my favorite uh, episodes of the Next Generation. Was that episode? What, sweetie? Um, there were two thoughts that I had. One was that the ocean was so much like a sponge, and he mentions that it that o- over a hundred lives had been lost to it, and it seems that the ocean did incorporate some of the essence of what it absorbed. So who knows what other things will land there and how it will will grow in time, in the time that it has. Although it's true that the blue star doesn't last that long. Although he did explain why at some point, and I don't, or how that, how that was one of the um, things that was studied about the planet was how life could have formed in well, he mentioned that the orbit was unstable, but that somehow the planet was still there. They, he, they theorized that the ocean might be playing around with the, with the local gravity fields to, to keep the orbit stable. But that would presume it would have to have had time to evolve to a degree of intelligence to be able to do that first. Well, they, but they also did talk about how it, how it evolved in a, in a shorter period of time. But there was all, you know, speculation. But another point I wanted to make was I thought it was so sad when they said that ethics went kind of to heck because, you know, he um, he claimed to love Rhea. But on the other hand, when Snow said, well, if you love her so much, why don't you go back and get the one that you stranded up in space? You know, did are, are you saying... You love her enough that you want to go off planet and start life again with her, but it's okay to kill her and leave her in an orbiting, you know, when you could go up and at least see if she's still alive. Do you even want to check? And he didn't. I want to ask, Evan, you mentioned a word which I don't know. Forgive my ignorance, but what is psi? Psychic powers. Psi. P.S. Psychic powers. Okay. I didn't pick up on that. Very good. Yeah, because the author, remember when that guy in the helicopter was, uh, oh, yeah, we we um, we were wondering about why the guy, remember they put this long account in of this guy was in a helicopter and he talked about seeing the garden and, and stuff and we were wondering why he didn't take any cameras with him. And then, of course, later on, you know, Lem mentions, you know, all these films and and pictures and stuff, but at the time, the guy is giving this verbal. long account. It was all verbal. There was no pictures, and we were wondering, you know, did he forget to take his camera? You know, it was kind of a slip a little bit, I think. What's interesting, I mentioned that, I don't know why I got it, but I don't know if it was Mary who put me onto it, but I got the dramatized version of it from the BBC. I bought it from Audible, so it's interesting. It's a pity there's no way that we could play that to compare it with the actual book. That, you know, I thought of listening to that, Martin, but when I listened to the sample of it, it made it more spooky than it already was. Yeah, I think I was the one that started that, because we talked about that author a couple of years ago, and I was still on Audible, and I got the the Audible version. It was just too weird. <laughs> there was so much stuff that just wasn't explained. I mean, you had to read the book to understand what was going on, because mostly all you heard was a bunch of ocean noises. No, in the in in the um, audible version, I mentioned. I think it starts off with him remembering that he was in a garden or something like that, which I don't know if the book mentioned at all. I think they, they might have taken some liberties with the um, dramatization. 
They might have, because a book doesn't start out with him in a garden. It starts out with him arriving at the station expecting people to greet him, and he walks in, and there's nothing. You know, a bunch of rooms that are out of order and doors that are locked, and it's weird. Oh, yeah, we mentioned, we noticed that everybody's messy. Everything's on the floor or cluttered somewhere, thrown about everywhere. It's like even his own. Oh, and and at one point he picks up he 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 picks up a scal a, something like a scalpel that's on the floor, and to uh, do something to cut gauze or something because he you know was he was uh, he had to put gauze on his face because he had sunburns, and, um, and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, can you imagine like just ha just having knives lying about on your floor and stuff? And we just noticed that was really kind of a. Everywhere, everything was messy. Everybody was messy. Yeah, and it got worse. <laughs> yeah. And that, what was the guy's name? Snow, was it? The one he first came in contact with? I mean, he was a, a mess himself completely, you know, uh, disheveled and, you know, just stuck hiding in that room most of the time. And, I mean, it was really weird, the few people that were still left on, on the station. That was the other thing that bothered me. You'd think if they'd had us, if there'd have been more people in the station rather than just three or four. Because, um, you know, it seems like kind of a waste to build such a big station and then only have four people in it. Well, they all killed themselves, basically. Um, and, oh, I was going to say something and I forgot what it was. Um, uh, I forgot. Well, there were a lot more people. It's just that... Um after you know so much research that was unproductive, they they started cutting back on the. They were the only three or four left, but there were a lot more earlier on. He mentioned that at some hundreds. point there were hundreds at one point, but some of them got killed, and then some of them just left after their research duties were over or whatever, and they they didn't replace them. It's like you know uh, the budget cuts and stuff after uh, you know you after you get all this unproductive research, eventually people just move on to something else. Yeah, but I wonder, and this thought just occurred to me, I wonder if they started thinking that the ocean was sentient, if it wouldn't terrify them to the point that they'd put an embargo on the planet um, just out of fear. Yeah, I guess. I don't remember him saying that, but uh, it's certainly possible that they would just quit at some point and just you know, leave it alone and not mess with it anymore. But uh, especially after, well, they sent their report, but they never got any response. At least the, uh, the book ended before they, got, they were, got a response about what they were supposed to do. Well, I think, you know, looking at the book as a whole, it certainly was quite an unusual type of book. You know, having the subject of this ocean and the, not knowing for sure if it was sentient or not, so... I think that was that would stand out among many of the of the books that we've you know that have been written or that we've read. So uh, you know that in itself, I thought, made it very interesting. Well, it's a little different from that. We're all doomed stuff that you know that uh, we were not well not we weren't reading all that at the club, but we were reading some about books about that. Uh, I was we were posting about that, Mary and I, um, over the last few weeks. Uh, it was certainly different from that stuff. Yeah, I was wondering if we could even, you know, it's a problem that I've thought about a little bit. 
I don't know how you know we can't even define sentience on this planet um, and it looks like you know there are some other intelligent beings chimps uh, parrots and I don't even want to get into the debate about dolphins and whales but you know chimps use tools I think in fact I think I've even heard that uh, crows and ravens use tools so are they sentient and how would you recognize a sentient that had no tool use well plants don't use tools and, and we're learning that they're sentient and then what's the what's the theory about the Earth being called what's it called bio or I forget that that the Earth might be a living organism in, in itself? It's called Gaia, I think. Yeah, Gaia, I think, is the name of it. Um, but there are terms that have bio in them that might uh, be what you're thinking of. But I've always heard it called Gaia, which is I don't know where that came from. It seemed like a bunch of New Age people used to throw that word around a lot. Well, and then uh, when is Siri going to be sentient? Uh, five years? Ten years? There's going to be the people are going to start uh, thinking about that if they aren't already. Uh, um, she can do uh, some interesting things sometimes. Um, I remember this thing where we were talking to a friend of ours, sweetie. You might have to refresh my memory on this. Remember? And she asked it something, and it gave, her, uh, it gave her an attitude about it. It was really strange, you know. It was sarcastic. It was, it was sarcastic. I know. I swear. Imagine if she takes over the phone and you want to turn it off, but she won't allow you to turn off the phone. Well, pretty soon we're going to have, well, I guess we do, AIs were artificial intelligence. But intelligence is the word that gets to me. I mean, you got these... You got these thinkers, you got these intelligent oh machines and, and you know, they're intelligent. What's intelligence? Isn't that sentient? Well yeah, can you be intelligent without being conscious or do you have to be conscious to be sentient? Well is it? I don't know. But uh you're you're right. Yeah, crows, I've heard about crows uh using tools. Uh I hadn't heard about ravens, but ravens are very smart, so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that they do use tools. They're among the smartest birds, you know, around. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be on a graduated scale, I guess. Didn't... Who has a scale like that? Um, Did Star Trek have a scale? I know they had a scale for industrialization. Um, That was all. But uh, I don't think they had a scale for sentience, but somebody did. Yeah, I don't know which thing they had for sentience. I mean, there was another example of uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation where they find this life form that lives in the sand in a thin layer of uh, water and it's like planet-wide and the only way they they figured it out was after the water beings or whatever you wanted to call them killed this guy because he was draining the water out and killing them. You know, we might be doing that right now. Um, with some of the species on Earth. And I think it was ravens. There was a a scientist at some university 
he actually had to wear a face mask across campus or the ravens would attack him. And they remembered him. They were quite vindictive. Yeah, speaking of Star Trek, there was this episode called Tin Men about an intelligent starship that was wandering around looking for companionship. <laughs> Flying around the galaxy, rather. Couldn't walk. <laughs> Couldn't land on planets, I don't think. That was my one of my favorite episodes, was the... A smart starship, and he finally got this telepathic man who couldn't fit into society as a whole, and he ended up living on this starship the rest of his life. Uh, that was one of my favorites. Well, there was, what was it, Emergence? That was kind of the same thing that happened on the Enterprise. What, didn't it develop its own sentience, and then, then it left? That was one of them. And then there was the space being that where they... They thought it was attacking them, they killed it, and then they found out it had a baby in it. You know, was it intelligent? That's what I think, that's why I think we'd probably kill intelligence before we recognized it. I think you're correct. Um, I do. Hey, speaking of that, you know all these asteroids that are flying by us? What if one of them are intelligent? What are we going to do, nuke it? Almost certainly, I'm afraid. You know just to protect ourselves. I read in Discover, I think it was about a year or so ago, about bacteria living in clouds and some, somehow controlling how they move across the sky, that they're just not blown across, that there are things that they do that scientists are looking at and they can't figure out why. And then I think somebody came up with, oh, there's bacteria controlling them. And no idea beyond that how any of that works. Now that the clouds remind me of the of this book of the ocean of how you know the the images and stuff on the ocean were like like you said Mary like dreams or clouds. Oh yeah, there was that Star Trek uh, obsession when Kirk and uh, that cloud that attacked him. Remember, and uh, uh, eleven years ago, and he found it uh, again, and mm-hmm. he couldn't convince McCoy and. That it was, and Spock that it was sentient at first, but then finally he they did conv- he did convince him because it turned around, it came back after it was on its way out, and it and Star Enterprise followed it, and it came back to attack them. One would wonder if our ocean were sentient, what would happen with polluting it, polluting the ocean as we are, if it would have some way of striking back. <laughs> well, did you ever read Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud? Um, now, there was a really um, extraterrestrial intelligence. It was born in space, lived in space, and it was just a big cloud like um, – oh, it's, it, it had an orbit big – it was farther across than the orbit of Earth. That sounds like it could be an interesting book to read. Is that available? I don't think so. I haven't seen it. I, I wonder if it was a talking book on uh, disc. I didn't. I I still had sight, but our our planetarium here made a production about it. You know, using their star projector to show this thing coming in, and all of them talking, and what it did when it passed the Earth, and then suddenly they realize it's intelligence. It's intelligent. Of course, the book was better. Man, I really, 
real. I remember when I was a kid and we went to the planetarium. I was so sad. I would love, love to see the sun and the moon and the stars and oh man. And then hey, there was just a solar eclipse. Um, I think it was yesterday. And then we have um, I think another blood moon coming up, and we also have another. I don't know if it's another solar eclipse. I, I'm oh, I'm interested in all of that. I just wish I could see it. Well, yeah, there was a total solar eclipse, but it was over in Indonesia. They could see it, but it was cloudy. Uh, some people saw it, but most of them, it was cloudy. They didn't get to see it. But there'll, there'll be another one visible from the U.S. I think it's at August of 2017 or sometime in the, in the fall of 2017. I forget when, when they said, but it'll be, next year there'll be one that's visible from here. I'd like to see a supernova, particularly one like the Chinese saw in about 10,000, the year 1,000, where you could actually see it in the daytime. Oh, yeah, that would be so cool. Um, but, yeah, I, I read all this astronomy stuff like some people here probably do, and I hear podcasts, and I keep wishing... There's got to be a way for all of us to see that sometime. I know they've tried to put books in Braille with raised drawings, like Touch the Stars and all of that, and I've got some of that, but it just doesn't quite do it. Because, yeah, we can touch the shapes of things, but I think being able to see it would just be so fabulous. Uh, well, I think whether hard science or no, uh, I think Solaris was very evocative. Um, and I think most of us thought that whether, you know, whatever flaws the book had, but I'm afraid we have to start thinking about our next book because it's almost 10 minutes till the hour. So, uh, anybody got any ideas for, uh, the next book? We have five weeks this time because our next meeting will be on April 14th. So, uh, think about, you know, let me know if you have any ideas for what you want to read. To Victor Reader. I've got a couple of books on my stream, and I think I'm... I'm, Oh, there it is, Jeffrey A. Carver, but I didn't get the name of it. Let's see. Info. Infinity Link by Jeff... We read... Lissy and I read that years ago, and uh, we enjoyed it. Remember that, sweetie? No. The Infinity Link? Remember the the guy who was... uh, in the um, with the aliens and uh, <laughs> I don't remember it real well. It was pretty long. I remember that and the, the songs. I'm I, I'm just laughing because how many science fiction books are about a guy with aliens? <laughs> Honey, I'm trying. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to remember. It was quite a long time ago. It was like six or seven years ago. Let's hear the synopsis. Yeah, we'll hear the synopsis. That'll bring it back to us. Okay, let me see if I can get this working. Infinity Link by Jeffrey A. Carver. Copyright 1984 by Jeffrey A. Carver. Narrated by Madeline Bazard. This book was originally created for audio cassette playback. Any announcements concerning cassettes do not apply to this recording. This version contains markers allowing direct access to major portions of the book. Annotation. This science fiction tale combines romance, political intrigue, and contact with beings from the far reaches of outer space.
some strong language, and some descriptions of sex. 1984. From the book jacket. The Infinity Link is a riveting tale of scientific discovery as the men and women of a secret government project race to contact mysterious beings from the far reaches of space. It is a tense story of political intrigue as rival powers fight to control the discovery. And it is the moving, compelling saga of a love that shatters time and space of a young woman caught in a telepathic computer link with these ancient voyagers, whose strange odyssey changes forever the future of Earth. Combining visionary scientific speculation with passionate human characters, the Infinity Link is a fine example of hard science fiction at its best. Another book by Jeffrey A. Okay, let me get the length of it here. Info. Infinity Link. 95. Headings. Total time. 19. Hours. 26. Minutes. 33. I'm a little surprised that you would want to read that, Mary, because I... Now, I could be wrong, but I thought you didn't like politics too much. It looks like there's enough in there that might be interesting, because I don't think it's all politics from the sound of it. I will say this. It sounds interesting to me. I think it sounds interesting. I'm going to probably read it anyway. And as long as they're politics, well, maybe I better not say, yeah, I'm going to say it. As long as it doesn't descend to the kind of stuff we're having now, I'm won't be. I, I will be very impressed if if it's better than the what stuff we have going on now. Oh, anything's better than this. Although this debate tonight, I think, is the best I've seen yet. Um, yeah, I vote for it. Unless you want to play your second book, Mary, I'm okay with this one. What's your second book? Um, is it the Flicker Men? Because I know we talked about that on the on the on the list, and it sounded kind of interesting, but it's a good deal shorter. No, it's called Twisted, and I forgot the author's name. Mary, thank you for slowing down the speed. It was really nice of you because I was really able to understand the synopsis. Yes, Twisted by John Kramer. He used to write columns for Analog a long time ago. Do you want to hear Twister? Oh, yeah, Twister. I remember that one now. Yeah, that's going to be hard. That's going to be good. Try that one. Okay. Twister by John Kramer. Copyright 1989 by John G. Kramer. Narrated by Ilona Dulaski. This book was originally created for audio cassette playback. Any announcements concerning cassettes do not apply to this recording. This version contains markers allowing direct access to major portions of the book. Annotation. Physicist David Harrison has discovered a way of manipulating a drive field that will put alternate universes within human reach. When corporate espionage agents arrive at the laboratory to steal the device, David activates the mechanism and catapults himself into another world. Two children, who had been hiding in the laboratory, are his companions on the unexpected adventure. Some Violence and Strong Language, 1989. From the book jacket. Science fiction at its best is about how much fun it is to do real science, to experience the excitement of scientific ideas, 
and to use them to build wonderful new devices that do new things, that transform our lives. This kind of SF is called hard SF by the fans. The hard stuff that is the finest pleasure of the connoisseur. Twister is hard SF. Twister is a first novel by John Kramer, who is known to the SF readership for his alternate view science columns in Analog Magazine. He brings a knowledge of the grid and detail of the everyday life of the working scientist to the story of David Harrison, the young physicist who discovers the twister effect, an astounding breakthrough in experimental physics that puts alternate physical universes within reach of human exploration. The plot thickens when some hired thugs are sent by a corporate espionage agent to steal David's experimental device. As David is about to send the whole shebang, including a big chunk of his lab, into another universe and out of the reach of the thieves, he finds the two young children of one of his colleagues have hidden in his lab to surprise him. In a split second, David decides, and he and the children pass together through the twister field into another world leaving the bewildered thugs behind. Stranded on another Earth not quite like ours, David must use his basic knowledge to become a Robinson Crusoe in this new place, to save himself and the children, and to find a way back home. The forefront of science fiction is a scientific speculation found in hard SF. Twister is based on real physics, provocative and even startling. Such writers as Larry Niven, David Brin, Gregory Benford, and James P. Hogan have made their reputations writing this kind of fiction. Add John Kramer's name to that list. Twister is essential SF. About the author. Okay, let's see how long this is. Info. Twister. 32. Headings. Total time. 12. Hours. 33. I think I like the other one. I like them both. That would be my second. I think I like them both. Well, I'd like to read them both, but I think I want to do the Infinity Link first because of the length of time. You know, five weeks means we don't have to bust uh, a gut trying to read it because I've got a couple of books that are 40 hours long that I'm plowing through. All right. Well, then we'll do it. Uh, the, the eyes have it. So uh, our next meeting will be on April 14th, 2016, and we will do The Infinity Link by Jeffrey A. Carver. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy Pie Day. <laughs>